This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, May 16th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The pitfall of a general, they say, is fighting the last war. The same with politicians. They're pitfall averse also, but their wars are scandals. The entire private server mess was Hillary Clinton trying to avoid the invasiveness that marked her career in politics. She thought she could forestall the next Whitewater or Travelgate or Filegate scandal by just not having a paper trail. Yeah, that turned out to be the Maginot line of data management. With this White House, I think they're fighting the last war when a president was almost impeached was about to be impeached. Let's compare it today to 1974. Investigations, possible conspiracies, threats of taping. Oh my gosh, it's Henry Kissinger. A top advisor named HR. Resentment of the media. Jowls. With all that in the air, here's what I think the president's advisors are doing. They're making President Trump impervious to the question that felled Nixon. Now let's recall what Howard Baker famously asked. What did the president know And when did he know it? With this president, they have crafted a bulletproof answer. Nothing and never. If we keep Trump totally ignorant about everything and anything, thus capitalizing on his naturally occurring state of ignorance, we've got a lot to work with. We should be able to avoid the worst of the worst. You know, nobody knew that knowing would be so hard. But here we are. The president can't leak classified information because he's the president. The president can't have a conflict of interest because he's the president. The president is always presidential because he's the president. This has been true since his election. Well, he's the president-elect, so that's, that's presidential behavior, yes. And that's as true today as when a version of it was first articulated 40 years ago. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. On the show today, I spiel in depth about the Russian revelations. Wait, which Russian revelations? Ah, right, yeah. The revelations to the Russians, not about the Russians. Got to be specific. And I promise I will not give away methods or sources. But first, Chuck Klosterman has been here before. He's here again. He's talking about a collection called 10. It's his 10th book. It's an anthology of his greatest hits and best essays and interviews over the years. Tom Brady's in there. Taylor Swift is in there. Jimmy Page is in there. And Chuck Klosterman is right here. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Chuck Klosterman, previous guest of The Gist, is out with a new collection called X. Not about Malcolm, but I don't know if you know this. This is the uh, Roman numeral for 10. And so what it does is it goes back over the last decade and collects some of his writings and and precedes them with his ruminations on the writing. So you get a little bit about what he was thinking of when he wrote the essay or criticism. And sometimes you just get criticism of the piece of criticism. Hello, Chuck. Welcome back. Hey, it's great to be here. You know, as I'm doing the promotion for this book, I am now realizing that no one is going to realize that's a Roman numeral. Oh. Everyone is calling it X. Yeah. I guess it, I mean, that's <laughs> stupid of me not to suspect this. You know, I did a an anthology in the past, my fourth book, so that was four, four. Yeah, but four. that was in Roman numerals. So some people would be like, call it like Chuck Klosterman IV, mm-hmm. as if it was like a medical text. So I guess now that they will think, yes, I'm trying to be Alex Haley or something, but that is not... The case. Well, it is. You are known <laughs> for literature, and so mm. we have to. Of this symbol, we could. It could be that you don't know how to uh, perform your signature. I mean, there are a number of interpretations of an X. unknown quantity. Yes. I guess. Yeah, sure. Uh, an yeah, ex, well, an exponent. Maybe like it was show. brilliant. Solve for yeah. solve for X. But can we ever really solve Chuck yeah. Klosterman? I thought that I don't. You know, hard on yourself or self-critical. But if there was a through line, I would say two thirds of the essays you more or less say something either slightly or a bit denigrating about. And sometimes it's not an insult to the essay. It's just that you were disappointed with this wouldn't be perfect. Um, is that who you are or is that uh, is that intrinsically wind, uh, wound up with just how you see the world? You're always going to want for more perfection than you achieved? I think it's kind of common to do that when you look back on things you've written in the past. I shouldn't say that. I guess I can't speak for all writers, mm-hmm. but... Typically, I do not reread my work ever. I always think to myself, like the first book came out in 2001. And I always think to myself, like, maybe I'll read it in 2021 and see what it's like. But I bet when I get there, I won't do it. I won't want to. So when you do a compilation, you have to go through all these things. And as you do it, I just find the desire to rewrite things or or to restructure things and then you're kind of tempted to do that, but then you're like, well, that defeats the purpose. If these were good enough to run once, they should be good enough to run again. It's kind of yeah. cheating to alter them. I don't know. It does seem that everything I've done in my life is bad when I think about it. <laughs> it always seems that way. You know, it seems when you're writing something, it feels great when you're writing it. And the first time you read it, you're like, hmm, I don't know. And then you go through all the edits and it gets worse and worse and worse. And then years later, if you see it again, you think, well, maybe the idea was good, but I don't know about the writing. Yeah, I guess once the adrenaline of being finished wears off and then it's all the drudgery of edits, it's very hard to say, yeah, this is getting better. Especially since what editing is, is literally saying, here are the things that are bad. Well, (laughs) or it's just getting further and further away from sort of what you imagine you're writing in your mind. I mean, the first time you're typing a sentence that seems the closest, like Mm. the closest manifestation of what you're actually thinking about. You try not to think that way, but I wonder if it unconsciously gets in your mind. Is there in 2017 less of a point of the anthology than there used to be? I mean, everything's free. I bet most of this is available free on the internet. Well, you know, it is. (laughs) Although that's technically true, but like when... 
uh, somebody I was talking to when they they heard this was coming out. The guy said, like, well, hey, you know, couldn't I just go to Google Books and look at every one you picked and then go into Google with your name and all the subjects and put them all sort of into like a folder? And then, you know, there's probably 50 pages worth of new material in this. They're like, well, then I could go to the library and just read all those sections. And I was like, you know what? Yes. If you're if that to you is a twenty five dollars, like twenty five dollars is too much that you want this material yeah. for some reason, yeah. but you want it, you know, go ahead. Of course, most stories now are available on the internet if you look for them. But I think being in the media, sometimes we forget that one, the average person doesn't read everything that when it comes up. You know, they, they, I get used to the idea of feeling like I read the entire Internet every day, but that's just sort of an extension of what I do for a living. It's like uh, that's not normal. Also, there's a lot of people who just don't like reading on the Internet, a huge section oh. of the country. Yeah. And you probably remember the anthologies that you read of specific writers. I mean, with me, it was David Foster Wallace, and before that, that was H. L. Mencken. Man, yeah. well, no, <laughs> yeah. that supposedly fun, fun thing. thing. Yeah. I, I mean, not only do I remember reading that book and be affected by it, I remember getting it. I got it in a very a kind of a meaningful way. Uh, uh, I was thirty or twenty nine. No, I was probably no. I was like twenty eight or twenty seven. And a very good friend of mine died from cancer, who was my age. And we all went back to his funeral in rural Minnesota. And uh, one of his friends went to Barnes & Noble and saw that that book had been remaindered. So he bought like 30 copies of this book and gave it to everyone. The guy who died was named Thad Holen. He was like, he wrote like, I think Thad would have loved this guy or whatever, yeah. you know. So I read that book and that was that was my introduction to him as a journalist. Like I had known that he had written, you know, Infinite Jest and stuff, but that yeah. was really my introduction to him as as somebody who I was like, boy, this is this is probably the closest I've ever come across of what I did not realize I wanted to do with my life. You know, write like this and sort of have that that sort of collision of conversational writing with like incredibly intellectual academic ideas and the sentences would be right next to each other and it wouldn't seem jarring. Yeah. Do you think that he influenced you beyond the inspirational level? I'm sure he did, but I do feel this is, you know, people ask you about influences all the time. I'm yeah. sure, you know, and, and I like anybody else, there was like periods, like, you know, when I, it was a period in college when I was just obsessed with Douglas Copeland. And then there was a, another period in my life when I was obsessed with Raymond Carver. I think Wallace was probably the last one. It does seem to me that you kind of start, I hate to say become a writer or whatever, but you stop wanting influence, that you don't want your work to be compared to someone else. Or you don't want it to feel like someone else's yeah. work. Um, you know, when, when you get a book, you know, when they review your books, if if they if they like if if a book critic likes your book, uh, like the the compliment they will say is you know they will compare you to somebody else who was great. Mm -hmm. The early books, every so often, especially killing yourself to live because I do a lot of drugs in that book, they people would like you know compare you to Hunter S. Thompson just for that reason, and it was always like, well, that's I know that's a compliment, but I don't want. You don't want to be somebody else. You know, if somebody says, oh, your band's great, you're just like the Beatles, that's only a compliment <laughs> if you're a Beatles cover band. Uh -huh. Like, it's not a compliment to be somebody else. What, so, is, what do the Gallagher say? Uh, yeah, say exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just, they're so yeah. Beatles-like, yeah. yeah. Um, but I want to ask you this. So as someone who went from 
uh, doing interviews more to being interviewed. Did you pick up any specific techniques from anyone you ever interviewed that you tried to incorporate in interviews? Well, there are some things that I realized that I just stopped doing entirely, which is there is never any reason to tell the person you're interviewing about your own life, even if you think it's an entry into a question. Uh, and it's a, it's a natural thing. It's like you want the person to talk about, oh, you know, their childhood. So you maybe he's talking about your childhood, thinking it'll like make it more of a conversation. But when you're being interviewed, you're just sitting there nodding your head being like, get to it, get to the question, get to the question, you know. Um, also, I always make sure the person, like when I talk to Kobe Bryant or something, I make it very clear. It's like, look, I know this is not real. Like you would never be here if I wasn't writing a story about you. And I would never be able to ask you these things if you didn't know that I was bringing a tape recorder. So this isn't a real conversation. When journalists say like, oh, you just try to get it, you know, you try to get it so it's just normal. Yeah. You guys talking. That, that's you spend so much time that they forget you're there. I just I, I just tell the guys like, hey, there are things I want to know about you and things I want to know are things I'm actually curious about. I'm not going to ask you the questions that I know I'm supposed to ask you unless I'm authentically curious about it. And I found that works better. That came up in the Brady interview, Tom yeah. Brady interview, in a way where you asked the, a question about, you quoted from the Wells report about how he was generally aware of ball deflation. And he reacted like, well, you're asking that just because you have to ask it. And you said, no, I am genuinely curious. And you were. And there were several follow-ups that it, I loved. Uh, first of all, I'll put my cards on the table. I thought as much as someone is rich, powerful, and of everything going for him as Tom Brady is, I still think he was kind of victimized by the NFL in that whole situation. That said, I think his answer were lawyered up and especially to you sucked so even well, though he gave nothing i was very okay. satisfied the by that is, q a he had already you know given a statement on this right which was that that he was not aware of this okay yes. so here was my assumption my assumption is i'll ask him if he was generally aware and he would say of course not i already said that and that would lead into this other line of questions that were still about deflate mm -hmm. but he kept saying it's an ongoing you know uh trial it's ongoing court thing i can't talk about it but that's not really true unless you're changing your answer if you're accused of murdering someone and later on someone says like did you murder that guy you can't go i can't comment on it the trial's still going on like if you're innocent you can say i'm innocent um the, the weirdest thing about that whole Tom Brady thing is I was under the impression that everyone knew this is what we were talking about. Like this was like he was man of the year for GQ, but the central thing was Deflategate. And that's what I wanted to talk about and how that sort of changes the meaning of somebody who is sort of a, you know, a man of the year, a lionized figure, somebody that no one is trying to argue is not great. But, you know, what does this mean? Um, and either he had no idea that this was going to be on the table, no one told him, or he just had made the decision. And it ends up kind of creating this awkward thing where the one yeah. thing I want to talk about is the one thing he's not going to mention. So you have a big intersection of culture and music, uh, especially, but also sports. Do you assume Kobe Bryant is going to care what he writes about you? I, I guess well, it depends on the kind of yeah, superstar. Royce White, uh, who played 56 seconds yeah. in the NBA, probably would read that. It was probably one of his longer, more well, high-profile pieces. I think Kobe would, too. The difference, in, in a larger sense, though, is that the athlete has nothing to gain from being candid, mm -hmm. whereas an entertainer does. I mean, if Jimmy Page, in that interview with him, if he had said something like, well, you know... I was friends with Keith Richards, but 
the Rolling Stones were never as good as us ever. Like that would have been a huge deal and it would have prompted interest in Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones. It's not in this book. It's in, I think it's probably in the, maybe the other co- anthology. I interviewed Steve Nash and I was talking about other NBA players, you know, and he was saying, oh, like, you know, Ginobili going left is unstoppable and all these things. But I was pushing him harder and harder. And at one point he was like, can we just, I got to just tell you, I'm not going to answer these questions because <laughs> why would I do that? Yeah. Like there's, they're, Success is actually performance based. Yes. So being interesting, that's like Terrell Owens. I mean, Terrell Owens was willing to be candid and stuff, but that in no way helped him as a player. And in fact, is probably going to keep him out of the Hall of Fame. This comes down to an essential difference between the athlete and the artist is that the athlete is engaged largely in a non-subjective enterprise. Absolutely. In a, and, yeah. and the artist, in a way, could need you. So when you're dealing with Taylor Swift, there is a calculation without you or people like you. She stops being Taylor Swift. Totally untrue with Tom Brady. I mean, I think in some ways even the starker difference is between like Taylor Swift and someone like Jimmy Page. Yeah. You know, because Zeppelin never did interviews. They were always like, anything we say will impact the interpretation of our music. We don't need that. Our records are good enough. Taylor Swift would never think that way. Taylor Swift, uh, either, well, you can, it depends how you look at, either understands or believes or projects that what she does musically and the mediated response to it are just inherently intertwined. Mm -hmm. As far as Jimmy Page is concerned, it's almost like an almost famous situation, like, I'm the enemy. I'm trying to hurt his band or hurt his career. Um, and a modern performer would never think that way. I really feel like Jack White was almost the last person who was still of the opinion in the early 2000s that, like, media was, is trying to hurt me. It's trying, like, you're, you're trying to, to take me down and it's just going to hurt the music. I haven't really encountered anyone since him in, in like in like a musical film television kind of specter who did not see giving the interview is an extension of their work. All right. So here's my last big question. When Prince died, huge outpouring, shock, uh, appreciation of his music, all totally proper. When Chuck Berry died, obituaries, remembrance, a tenth of what Prince got and... Uh, you wrote a book where the answer is Chuck Berry, and the question is essentially, what if we're wrong about everything? What might we one day realize was the greatest uh, exemplar of at least the music of this era? Could be Chuck Berry. I, I buy that. I guess my biggest explanation for why I thought Chuck Berry was underappreciated um, compared to Prince was just that the gatekeepers, the guardians of culture, are much more likely to have been influenced and directly affected by Prince than Chuck Berry. But do you agree with the premise and... Do you have an explanation for it? Well, the reason it feels that way isn't so much institutional media. You know, the way the Times covered Prince's death and the way they covered Chuck Berry's death are different, but not totally different. What you're really talking about is social media reaction. And social media is an emotional medium, not an intellectual one. It's not a rational one. It's not like when people are reacting to someone's death on social media, it's not as though they are thinking – it's important I do this because uh, this needs to be sort of remembered or there needs to be commemorated. What they are reacting to is their emotional relationship to that thing. So the number of people on Twitter who listened to Prince in junior high is exponentially larger than the number of people who listened to Chuck Berry in junior high who are also on Twitter. Yeah. And that's really what it is. I mean, the very last 
thing in my book, I sort of talk about how I have a little discomfort with the way people perform their anguish over death now, you know. I will say that I guess it's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, if people are going to have some kind of collective shared irrational experience, it's better that at least it's people dying. You know, it's not like they're making fun of these people or whatever. But just because something is not terrible doesn't mean it's not weird. It is weird <laughs> the way people react to death now. Yeah, yeah. Or worth considering in a way other than the way that everyone else is considering it. Yeah. Don't think yourself weird. All right, Chuck Klosterman. The name of the book is 10, but it's spelled X. You get that. It is. Is this, so is this considered the subtitle This on the back? I guess that would be the I guess subtitle. the subtitle. Now, his la- the last time you were in here, uh, the cover was printed upside down. Well, you know, in this, you have the galley copy. Yeah. The actual book is entirely black. Oh. The, all the pages, it's like spinal How tiled. much more black yeah. could it be? None more. None more black. Okay. It is a highly specific, <laughs> defiantly incomplete history of the early 21st century. Three adverbs. Good writing, Chuck, as always. Chuck Klosterman, thank Thank you. Thanks. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now the spiel. Yesterday, H.R. McMaster spoke to the press about what was or wasn't disclosed in a meeting with the Russians. McMaster, clean-pated, barrel-chested, and none too pleased, stood in the White House driveway. He held type notes on a folded piece of paper, but what glimpses he stole of them, he did so stealthily, making a point to look the assembled media in the eye as often as he looked down on the page. The National Security Advisor, in place because his predecessor was in too deep with the Russians, said of those very same adversaries and their recent foray into the sanctum sanctorum of American power. The story that came out tonight, as reported, is false. The president and the foreign minister reviewed a range of common threats to our two countries, including threats to civil aviation. At no time, at no time, were intelligence sources or methods discussed. The former general alighted specifics. McMaster was forcefully jabbing his finger in the eye of an onlooker who was standing near the accuser, but wasn't the accuser. He was rebutting allegations that weren't actually levied. He denied a lot of what was never alleged. The president did not disclose any military operations that were not already publicly known. The president at no time donned a mustache. The president also never hummed the theme to Peter Gunn. No dum dum da 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 Nor was there a da-da. That part never happened. All right. That was yesterday. This is today. No, I'm not concerned at all. The, the, that conversation was wholly appropriate to the conversation. And I think wholly appropriate what the expectations are of our intelligence partners. McMaster clearly giving the impression that he, as a guardian of secrets, methods, and American security, was not alarmed by what the president disclosed. He did point one finger, however. And so I think the real issue, and and I think what I'd like to see really debated more, is that our national security has been put at risk by those violating confidentiality. And those releasing information uh, to the press that that uh, that could that could be used, uh, connected with other information available, uh, to to make American citizens and others more vulnerable. 
It was the leakers, not the leak. Let me put it another way. Right now, I'm going to say a sentence. The sentence will contain the word revealed. McMaster is arguing that only the first time you hear the word revealed should you be worried. Here's the sentence. It was revealed that President Trump revealed extremely sensitive information to the Russians. Okay, got it? Be worried that we know that Trump gave away the secrets to the Russians rather than be worried that Trump gave away the secrets to the Russians. There is a case, by the way, that McMaster is right. Maybe Trump did blow a source on the inside. And maybe the security experts are all saying this is true. The Russians are going to tell the Syrians, maybe the Iranians about the source. The source will dry up. Maybe the source will be killed if it's that kind of source. But the bigger threat is that the country that developed the source will know the U.S. blew his cover. They'll never work with us again. The New York Times is reporting that that country is Israel. So maybe McMaster is focused on what hurts America more. And he is calculating that not getting good intel from the Israelis is more hurtful than Trump blowing this one operation. All right, could be. It's a tough calculation, but one that McMaster can live with. Remember, he's the guy who already said yes to Trump's invitation to be national security advisor presumably to mitigate the damage wrought by a worse national security advisor. Maybe McMaster's saying to himself, this sucks, but that's exactly why I'm here, to embrace this suck. McMaster definitely gave the impression that he was fine with whatever Trump said. And then he ended today's press conference on this strange note. I should just make maybe the this, this statement here that, that the president wasn't even aware you know, of where this information came from. He wasn't briefed on the source and method of the information either. Now, it's also important to note that what Trump said was not classified. Want to know why? Because Trump said it. The president can declassify anything at any time, and McMaster wouldn't comment if this was a spur-of-the-moment decision or not. Perhaps McMaster can't get inside the president's head. As a podcast host, I have no such restriction. Do you know what my mouth is? My beautiful, perfect mouth. It's one of the great mouths, really, it is. Not only is it perfectly round, you can calculate ballistic systems with my mouth, steam-powered ballistic systems, but it is a declassification machine. It is almost magical. Now, the question is, did I know I was declassifying? And the answer is, it doesn't matter. Did Midas, strong leader, Midas, did he know beforehand that things were gold? Doesn't matter. Because after he touches them, they're gold. Do three doors down, great band, play the inaugural. Do they know before they sing a song, if it's a beautiful song, it doesn't matter. They have voices like angels. So once they sing it, it becomes beautiful. Did typhoid Mary know if she touched meat beforehand, it would have typhoid irrelevant because afterwards it had typhoid. My mouth is like typhoid Mary's hands. Spreads declassification. Fantastic declassification. I'm the president. Can you believe it? And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson is a just producer. She worked hard on this premise. What if the Sid and Marty Croft show weren't HR Puff and stuff, but HR McMaster? It might sound something like this. Chris Berube, just producer, was developing the new Netflix series, HR McMaster of None, where a likable short Indian American comic slash national security advisor gets a girl pregnant and we follow them as the relationship builds. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is offering HR McMaster class. It's a six hour series about walking back damning presidential actions. 
First half hour is about how to do that. The next five and a half hours about how to justify yourself. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He's coming out with H.R. McMaster of the Universe. By the power of Trump Tower, I have really a lot less power than I'd hoped. The gist. Today, you, as a gist listener, avoid this premise. Hey, instead of H.R. McMaster, what if he was H.R. Mixmaster? The press conference could have gone a little something like this. So you avoided that. You're lucky. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.